I'd like you to sing that with me this morning. So uh, we're going to get a little intro here. And if you don't know it, it's real simple. Join with me and sing this chorus together. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture. And Familiar to some of you? This was one of the early choruses that began the revolution in our worship music about 30 years ago or so. And the revolution came in the fact that we began to sing songs to God instead of just about God. That was one of the things that was unique about the new choruses. And then secondly, we began to sing more Scripture. And that's what this one in particular was. Scripture put to music. Not for the first time, as you'll see. That has long been a chorus that God's people have sung. And and there's an invitation to worship there, an appeal to kneel before our God, our Maker. And it's, it's warm and it's promising. And He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture. The picture here is of sheep in a green, luscious, and protected place. And we're the sheep of His hand, a flock under His provision and His care and His protection. God is so good, isn't He? He is. And we've just celebrated that at Thanksgiving. And, and we anticipate what is yet to come, as we did with the Advent candle this morning. And, and that's good because we're celebrating His coming as a human to be our Savior. God is so good, isn't He? Now, does that only mean God is good as in good for us? Like we're the people of His pasture, sheep in this beautiful, luscious, green, protected setting. That we're the sheep of His hand. He protects and provides and cares and watches over His flock. Is that all that means? Let's go to where that chorus comes from. Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, we read the very words that were put to music here. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. Here's the invitation. Come, let's let's worship. Because God is good. And then the next two verses are kind of the first verse of this song. For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and and the mountain peaks belong to Him, and the sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Here we, we see His worth. 
He's great. He's supreme. And, and the creation demonstrates His majesty. He's so good, isn't He? And so comes the chorus. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our Lord, our Maker. For we are the sheep of His pasture. We're the sheep of His hand. Then comes the second verse. Because God is so good, right? Look at verse 8. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Oh, God is so good, isn't he? Hmm. Today, if you hear, what do you mean if we hear? We're here. We're, we're saying you're good. We're, we're praising you, Lord. What do you mean if we hear? Do not harden your hearts as you did at that quarreling place. Oh, yeah. Meribah, where we quarreled with God. As you did at the testing place of God. Oh, yeah. Masa. Where we truly tested God beyond reason. But, Lord, what would you have to bring that up for? I mean, we were worshiping. We were telling you about your goodness. What do you have to get so grumpy for? Why do you have to include the bad times in our song of praise? Is all God's goodness good for us? You know, like when we're the sheep of His pasture in that luscious, protected place. Or or when we're the sheep of His hand under His care and blessing and His company and His presence. Or could God's goodness also include warning, judgment, justice, and kindness and care and provision, all of who God is. See, the key to understanding this is realizing that God is not just what He does, but primarily who He is. God is good for so much more than what He just does. God is good initially and primarily because of who He is. He is holy, pure, and true. And He doesn't just do good. That isn't what makes Him good. You and I can do good, right? To some degree. I mean, we're not perfect, but we can do good. Does that make you good in any kind of absolute sense? No, you know that. He is good by definition. Character, 
thought, being, and behavior. God is good. So, so what does that mean? Well, that means that when he speaks to you, he speaks to you out of all of his goodness. Both what he does, provision, blessing, protection, the ultimate act of redemption in Christ Jesus, which he did, right? We know that. He did it. He actually acted it out as we studied. And in becoming the son of man, it was more than just being the son of God and deciding that he would save man. He had to become the son of man that he would actually do it. So he speaks to you out of his goodness in all that he's done, but he also speaks to you out of his holiness because of who he is. Holiness, purity, truthfulness, justice, honor. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living because it penetrates. It exhorts us. We looked at that last week. But it is also active in that it judges It arrives at the conclusion. It explains the consequences of if you do listen to him and if you don't. Why? Because of who he is and not just what he does. Cut to the chase. God is not Santa Claus who just does good. He is a holy God who is good. Last week I I asked, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? I didn't give credit to Stephen Curtis Chapman. That was who I was quoting. Nobody... And I, and I said in that, in, in this appeal that the, the scripture speaks to our hearts and it exhorts us, tells us things that we ought to do, that the world is dying for genuine, authentic people, right? No fakes, no posers. People who actually live what they say they believe. Well, what I find interesting is that God himself sets the example here. He's the first and most genuine one. He's true to his word, both in what he does and in who he is. If he says something, he will also judge accordingly. If he promises something, he will also fulfill it faithfully. And you know what? It's not all negative. Let me show you uh, another example that's that just shows his perfect consistency. As you may have picked up, I'm a bit fascinated with the concept of the table in Scripture. It's used all over the place in very powerful ways. The concept of a real table where people sit down and eat. God uses it to show hospitality. He does that when he met with Abraham. They sat down and 
And Abraham met with God. He speaks at it to show himself. He he did that at the Lord's table, which we're going to celebrate next week. That's why we come there, because he speaks at it. He did it on, on, on the road to Emmaus when he was talking with those men, right? And they didn't realize who he was. And then they sat down to eat. And then when he broke bread, they realized who he was. And he speaks through it. Oh, there we have the communion table as well. Where through the symbols of what happens there, he shows us what the meaning of his death, burial, and resurrection truly are. But I want to show you another one that shows us both the holiness of God, who he is, and the kindness of God, what he does. It was a day when the highest honor in the Old Testament with kings and the people of Israel, the highest honor was to be able to sit at the king's table. And Israel from the beginning had some trouble with kings. Uh, Saul was the first king, and he had a, a jealous mind. And he had a weak heart. And he had foolish behavior. So he lost his throne. Even after a lot of kind warnings, he had to be judged because he wouldn't obey what his God told him to do. So God, in perfect consistency, had to judge because of his rebellion. And he lost his throne. And his family was cursed. And most of them were wiped out and killed. And those that weren't were marginalized to far corners of the kingdom. Then came along the second king, whom the first one persecuted for many years. took him forever to finally get his kingship. But after he did, oh, this was a good king. He had a pursuing heart after God. He had a gifted mind. The Psalms are filled with his work. And a devoted behavior. Not perfect, but devoted And he responded to both God's holiness when he was wrong and his kindness receiving his forgiveness. When David finally got his reign, when he received his table, where only the privileged sat, a symbol of power and prestige and provision, he was God's chosen king and from him was going to come the Messiah. There, sitting at his table with all of that power, He said one day, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul, the first king, the cursed king, the failure of a king? Is there anyone in the house of Saul to whom I might show kindness, literally the kindness of God? If God were only what he does, then there would be no hope for those of us who do wrong. But God isn't just what He does. He is who He is. God is primarily who He is, and He acts out of His identity. And in this instance, we see His kindness through David. Because there was this descendant of Saul, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, David's best friend. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, those are the overachievers around here, okay? Now, they really know their Bibles. Mephibosheth, just a cool name to say, right? He was the grandson of Saul. 
The son of Jonathan crippled as a young boy because he was dropped by his nurse. Living in a place at this time of, of no pasture called Lodabar, often an abandoned corner of the kingdom. He was a handicapped societal embarrassment. And the last living relative of a failed king whom all wished to forget. See the power in this image? Into this man's life came an invitation from the king to live with him, to receive the kindness of God, to dine from that day forward at the king's table. He was carried to the table and he stayed there from that day forward. A broken person, the last living relative of a cursed family, lost in a barren corner of the forgotten part of that kingdom, but not to the king and not to the kindness of God. You see it? The perfect balance of God's judgment and his mercy, of his justice and his kindness. What does all of this have to do with what we're talking about in the letter to the Hebrews? Well, I've said, the author wanting us to understand, gathering at the beginning, There's four main things he wants you to get that are the foundation of everything he's going to take beyond. And he's going to take us beyond. In January, we're going to be done with the beginning. And he's going to press us deep into what we ought to be because of all of that. But he wants to make it clear. These four things you've got to understand. You've got to understand the Son of God. Because... (laughs) As we saw, what he said is greater than anything you've ever heard. And we found his words to be authoritative and definitive. You've got to understand, Christ is better than everyone because he's the son of God. But he isn't just that. He's also the son of man. And so we went into Hebrews chapter 2 and we saw that what he did is greater than anything you've ever seen. He became like you and I, that minuscule little nothingness that seems to be completely insignificant in this enormous universe that he created. But he became like that. And not just for a while, but forever. He became like us. He gives us He gives us purpose because he became like us. We're made in his image. And he walked through a process he's walking us through so that we know we can make it. And he gives us access into his presence and intimacy with him. And then we got to chapter 3 and began to discover not only is he the son of God and the son of man, but he then begins to reveal this word of God... And that's where we are right now. What the Word of God does is greater than anything you've ever read. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 can be divided into this diagram that I have for you. Two adjectives, two verbs, two results. We looked at one side last week. It's living, it penetrates, it exhorts us. And that's what we should be doing because of what He did for us. But it's also active and it judges And it arrives at the conclusion. It's the active word that judges. So now, let me read Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with this generation and I said their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. Does that sound familiar to you? It's Psalm 95. But why is it a psalm? Why? Why isn't it? back where it happened. For the overachievers here, they know that this didn't happen in Psalm 95. This happened way back in, in Numbers and, and in, in Exodus. And Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20 uh, reveal this incident, this place where they quarreled and where they tested God the first time they needed water and the second time they needed water. And for the overachievers, go to Numbers chapter 20 this afternoon and you'll find that at the end of the second time where they were Massa and Meribah, where they were quarreling and testing of God, it says he showed themselves holy to them. Now he gave them water, but he showed themselves himself holy to them. It has to do with Moses and his sin of striking the rock. And what we see is both God's What he does and who he is. Providing for them, but also judging according to his holiness. Now, that was just a little aside for those who look back at Hebrews. These people were judged for their rebellion, verse 8. And it's called the rebellion. Not like a rebellion. The, the one. Like, specific. When they said the rebellion... They thought of, oh yeah, Masa, Meribah, the testing of God, the quarreling against God. And they were judged for the testing of God. Look at verse 9. They tested me, he says. This isn't him testing them. They tested him for 40 years. They saw what he did for 40 years. And it was never enough to accept him for who he was. Do you see that? They watched what he did for 40 years, but it was never enough for them to accept him for who he was. You see, they just wanted him to be Santa Claus. Just do good, would you? Isn't that your job? No. I am who I am. This message was a part of Israel's heritage. They didn't just remember this. It was a part of what defined them at Meribah and Massah. And they were never to return to it. And it's presented in Psalm 95 in the midst of a psalm of praise that extols His glories and goodness and provision towards His people because there was no excuse. The penetration and exhortation precedes the inevitable consequence of listening to or not listening to. It's called judgment. And that's why it became this psalm. These were monumental sins against God's plan for His people. And the places were named to remind every traveler. And the psalm was written to remind every worshiper that God is a holy God. And He doesn't exist to serve you. You exist to honor Him by your obedience. And so it's summed up in verses 16 and 18 of chapter 3 here. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? 
And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And then look at the repetition. If your Bible breaks it into paragraphs, you see this over and over again in the passage. Do not harden your hearts. Three times he warns them. And do, they, do, they did not enter my rest. Two times he, he underlines that. The right side of the diagram. God's word is also active and it judges. And it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That means regardless of what you think of what God says to you, it will judge. It arrives at the conclusion. So as I put it, let it cut you now so that it will not condemn you later. You see, the difference between Saul, the failed king, and David, the good king, wasn't perfection. It was response. Saul continued to resist. And he didn't want to hear it. Because apparently you exist to serve me. Instead, David, who failed miserably through his own sin, responded to God's holiness and repented and received God's forgiveness in his kindness. He isn't a big Santa Claus who does good. He's a holy God who is good. Offering judgment because he's holy. Offering kindness because he is loving. What does all of that mean for us? Well, a couple things. First of all, thank him for what he does. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. We've done, it. We've done well to do... Do that at Thanksgiving. We do well to celebrate his coming and prepare ourselves that we truly celebrate the significant entry of him into this world. And we will do well to live in the light of his imminent return because he'll do that as well. But we must also obey him for who he is. We don't just... Praise him for what he does. We obey him for who he is. Do not harden your hearts. Accept him, both in his holiness that you might obey and in his kindness that you might be forgiven. Let the active word judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. In, in chapter 4, verse 13, there's... Uh, the, uh, the judgment of those that are reading now. I mean, the other ones are done. They're dead. But look at verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's an exhortation that we realize we must answer. And there is the judgment that we must answer. But, but there's also the kindness. I mean, look at chapter 4, verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Or in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. Like Saul, we have kind warnings. Like David, 
we must respond to both His holiness and His kindness. Now, let's get real practical. What does all of this mean? How do we not do this? I mean, you came out this morning. You could have gone somewhere else. I mean, I'm trying to do the best I can, right? How do we not do this? Well, let me give you some suggestions. First of all, we read what we like. We tend to pick and choose. I want to read about how God loves me, not how holy he is. I had a humorous experience with this uh, many years ago. Um, I was in in Brooklyn, and I was on my way to seminary. We hadn't left yet. There was another guy that wanted to go to seminary, and uh, he did. came there after I did and uh, graduated with honors. He was a brilliant guy, but he was just beginning... uh, in his quest to enter into the ministry. And, and so we were looking to get some courses before we went off to school. And we went to, um, to Calvary Baptist Church in Manhattan where they had some kind of an evening Bible school. And a great place, great school. Uh, but there was one professor that was, um, that was not recognizing this, at least I assumed, I mean, I began to perceive, as truly the Word of God. Um, you know, parts of it, Sort of. And I was picking this up, but my friend Dennis wasn't. And, and, and you know, you'd have a class for, for an hour and a half, and then there'd be a break, and, and then, then another hour and a half, and, you know, all, like three hours in an evening. And, and then you'd just come once a week, so it was a long class. So break time, I'm, I'm saying to Dennis, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with what this guy's doing with this because he's, he's kind of picking and choosing. Uh, Dennis didn't think so, and we went back into class, and he listened real carefully and everything, and... I'm not seeing that. So one class, I said, no, no, no. Didn't you hear what he said about, you know? I said, no, I'm not so sure about that. I said, I'm going to prove it to you. And we caught up to the guy. I remember, I'll never forget. It was right when we were going down into a a subway, right? Because we were all going back where we came from, the subway. And we caught him right at the top. And I walked up and said, wait a minute, just just one question. I don't want to hold you up. It all boils down to this. The red letters are more important than the black letters. And he went, yeah, exactly. You see, he he was only believing the red letters. If you got a red letter edition, those are the words that Jesus spoke. The black letters are, you know, everything else. And he made a distinction between the two. Uh, No, the Bible itself says all scriptures are inspired of God. He intended this whole thing to be revealed to us as his word. Now, that's theological. I kind of doubt anybody else is doing that here. I don't know, maybe are, but what do we do? We listen to whoever we want to listen to. The fact of the matter is, most of the time it's not about reading anyway. We just listen, right? You know, I heard, hmm, we pick and choose the truths that we like. Instead, we've got to understand God for all that He is. And all that Hebrews 4.12 says, His word is living and active it exhorts us but it also will judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart so read the whole thing any lack of understanding is for us to overcome it is not an excuse to dismiss or rewrite what he's already written okay read the whole thing any lack of understanding is for us to overcome and i first one to claim i don't understand everything But that's my problem. It's not the problem with the Word of God. 
And it's not an excuse to dismiss or rewrite what he's already said. He is God after all. Second thing we do. We minimize the horror of hell. We lighten the loss. I'm afraid. This passage says judgment against unbelief means no rest. Those literal people actually fell in the desert and died without their God. There is a true and living hell. It does exist. And it is the destiny of those who will not believe. It wasn't created for them. It was created for Satan and his angels. But it is the destination of those who belligerently refuse to believe. And we lighten that loss. You heard it uh, regarding the uh, survey I read about last week. Nine out of ten evangelicals aren't so sure it's really all that bad. Hmm. Believe the whole thing. Any sense of injustice you may feel is actually a lack, is a result of a lack of holiness on your part. Let me say that again. Any sense of injustice you may feel is actually a result of the lack of holiness that you have. It doesn't seem fair. You don't get to decide what's fair. I mean, God isn't fair anyway. If God was fair, we all deserve burning hell. He doesn't treat us according to fairness. It wasn't fair for Christ to die on the cross. But God, in all of his holiness, said, I can provide a solution to this problem, and I will. And it isn't fair, but it's true, and it's just, and it's right. And those of us who are recipients of that grace believe it, we've accepted it, and we still are dumbfounded. Aren't we? Why would he do that? Any lack of understanding on my part is merely the result of my not being holy. He is. So believe the whole thing. Both the grace for those who believe and the condemnation for those who don't. Third thing we do, and we are very guilty of this, so maybe I was preaching to the choir to some degree here until this one. We ignore the solution of heaven. Let me explain that. We sweeten the pot. We think that we're headed for the end of the rainbow. And when we get there, it's just all gold, pearls, and huge mansions with my name on it. Right? Listen, heaven's going to be beyond our wildest dreams. But judgment means giving account. He said it in verse 13. Look at it again. To whom we must give account. We have other passages that tell us that wood, hay, and stubble will be burned away and only what is gold and silver precious stone will remain 
What does that mean? This is how I see it show up most in the Christian community. We end up with some kind of personal rift with somebody else, some kind of interpersonal problem, some kind of a fight we can't resolve, and we just walk away. And you know what we say? Ah, we'll get to heaven and it'll all be done. You know, take care of it there. It's all, you know, then, then there won't be any problem anymore. I don't have to go back and try and resolve that pr- pr- problem with that person. Because if we get to heaven, it'll all be okay. Well, then why would God tell you to do it if you can just, you know, because Matthew 18 is full of it. You know, of the instructions on how you're supposed to make this right. Scripture's full of it. Go to that person. Talk to them. Seek forgiveness. Work it out. Well, no, when we get to heaven, it'll... We ignore the solution of heaven. You know what's going to happen when we get there? You guys, study it up. See if you think I'm right or wrong. But I think Jesus is going to have us make it right. We've got all of eternity. He's not in a hurry. There's plenty of time. And I think, I think our hearts are going to be changed. I think it's going to be easier. I think there are some problems that seemingly don't seem to be able to be resolved. When we get there, we'll make it right. Well, no, I can't because the Bible says it's only joy and happiness and there's no tears. It says he will wipe away every tear. I think we're going to have to face each other. Sit down and say, okay, now can we make it right? Now I will offer forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Or he would have zapped us up to heaven the minute we believed. He wants to do something. Many things in and through us to make us like his son as we walked through this journey we call life. So, prepare your whole life for that meeting. None of us will arrive perfect. It's impossible. But don't you want to get there with just as little unsettled as possible? Don't you want to show up with just as little baggage as necessary? We read what we like. We pick and choose. Read the whole thing. We minimize the horror of hell. We lighten the loss. So believe the whole thing. We ignore the solution of heaven. We sweeten the pot. So prepare your whole life long. The word of God is active and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What it does is greater than anything you've ever read. So let it cut you now so it doesn't condemn you later. And I'm going to ask Keith to join me again here. And I would like us to sing this song again. And I'd like you to sing it as a prayer. And after that, I'm going to pray and then we'll be done. But I'd like you to sing it as a prayer and to to consider these words. Come. Let us worship and bow down. Because He is our God. He is our Maker. And He's good. He's kind. But He's also good in the fact that we are sheep. And we're silly. And we're foolish. And we need His care. His correction. And His development.
that we might become more like His Son. So we're just mere people. We're just sheep. Now, the words actually say uh, the sheep of His hand. The original says, and just the sheep of His hand. You know, the emphasis on the fact that we're mere people. We're just people. He's God. And let's let Him be God in all of who He is and not just because of what He does. Stand with me and let's sing this again as a prayer. We'll sing it twice. Before I do, if there's anyone that uh, just needs a listening ear, someone who can uh, pray with them, help lighten their load, just because I get done talking doesn't mean that God has finished working. There'll be people up here afterwards available. You can come. Whatever your uh, concern is, whatever the burden, uh, these are trained individuals who can uh, help you share that burden uh, and, and encourage your hearts and give you some direction. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for being perfectly genuine, both holy and kind. May we respond as genuinely as you demonstrate yourself to be. Repenting before your holiness and accepting your forgiving kindness. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.